theyeshiva.net. Let me begin with a, uh, an anecdote somebody sent me some time ago that sometimes captures an interesting truth in life. Basically, David was working at a company for six months. You can hear me, yeah? And after six months, it was time for David's evaluation. So he walks into the boardroom, and you have three very uh, elegantly dressed people sitting. They're all wearing uh, designed uh, suits. They're sitting behind a mahogany desk, extremely proper, sophisticated, well-to-do. The one on the left scans the file of David. He looks up at him very accusingly and he says, I see that not once did you report to work at 9 a.m. during this entire period, six months. I haven't seen you come here even once at 9 in the morning when all the employees are supposed to show up. The woman in the middle shakes her head and she says, listen, this is not a place for schleppers. This is a Fortune 500 company. And instead of coming in with a jacket and a tie, the report says that you come in with working jeans. It's inappropriate. And then there's the man on the right, and he's staring at the papers in his hand, at David's file. And he says, our, surve- our surveillance cameras show that you spend less than 10% of your working hours at your desk. The rest of the time, you're basically strolling around the building. I don't think this company is made for you. And one of them looks at him and says, David, do you have anything to say for yourself, to defend yourself? And with confidence, he says, yes, I was hired as the night watchman. That's the story. Now, this brings us in to the theme that we want to explore, which is basically one of the most perplexing and enigmatic stories in the whole of Chumash. We know that it's perplexing right when we read it, but we also see from the fact that every single one of the commentators throughout the generations developed such a different perspective on the story means that the secret of it, the enigma of it, is quite palpable, and one struggles to make sense of it. This is one of the most also disturbing enigmatic episodes in the entire Torah when Moshe Rabbeinu, after 40 years, is denied the privilege of entering into the Holy Land. Let's remember the context. Miriam passed away. This has been a long journey, four decades in the wilderness, and the three shepherds of the Jewish people, the, the Tanakh calls them Shloishas Arayim, the three shepherds. Gemara says in Tainus it refers to Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe. They were the three shepherds who shepherded the Jewish people during these 40 years. Miriam passed away. Miriam passed away. We know on the 10th of Nisan, even though the Torah doesn't give a specific date. And afterwards, there's a crisis. There's no water. That's when, of course, the Jewish people find out that for 40 years they had water in the merit of Miriam. But there is no water, so the people come crying to Moshe Rabbeinu. 
We need water. We are going to die. Our children are going to die. Our families will die. All our cattle will die in the desert without water. Hashem tells Moshe to speak to the rock and it will give water. Moshe does not speak to the rock. Instead, he strikes the rock. He hits the rock. And in a very strange aftermath to that story, the Rebbeinu Shalom, God tells Moshe that because of this, he can't enter the land. That's the story in a nutshell. But it seems like a very trivial misdeed to be penalized in such a harsh way. Moshe Rabbeinu has been yearning for this moment all his life. The last 40 years, this was his his burning desire, trying to bring the people to the land. Crisis after crisis, he remained a fearless leader, full of empathy and love and conviction, and finally brought them to the gates, very close to the gates of Eretz Yisrael. What happened? Hashem's, if I could say, uh, I don't want to say favorite person, I guess there's no favorites, but certainly the person who's described in the Torah as the greatest prophet in history, there was never a prophet like Moshe who Hashem knew face to face. Torah describes him in Baalaischa, but Hashem says, He is trusted. He is, he is the most trusted in my entire home, in my entire world. The greatest prophet of all time who led the Jews loyally for 40 years. And the one thing that really mattered to him to enter into Eretz Yisrael, he is now denied of that privilege, of that opportunity. Where is the justice? Where is the justice in this? As I said, interpretations are so many, and yet it seems that the question always remains a little stronger, maybe a lot stronger than the answer. But today I want to learn with you one perspective, and it's the one actually that Rashi, the great commentator on Chumash, this is the one that Rashi chooses. It's not Rashi's original commentary. As many a Rashi, it's taken from a Medrash, known as Medrash Agada. But this is one interpretation that Rashi gives us, and this is what I want to focus on. People read this Rashi every year. People learn this Rashi when they're growing up and throughout their life. Like many a Rashi, you read it through, and one often doesn't stop and reflect what do these words actually mean. Before we learn the Rashi insight, let me summarize what's the message that Rashi seems to be trying to tell us. Moshe was barred from entering into the Holy Land, Rashi will say, because there was a crucial lesson that Moshe needed to teach the Jewish people at this particular time in history. Not earlier, at this time. It was a lesson that could only be conveyed if he would speak to the rock not if he would strike the rock. And by hitting the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, he lost the ability to teach the Jewish people this particular unique lesson. One asks, what is this lesson? What is so powerful? This lesson must be so powerful, so significant, so earth-shattering, that devoid of this lesson, it's not just, okay, you didn't do a lesson. You know what happens in school? The teacher, good curriculum, you have to cover this day, this lesson, next day, another lesson, this week, this month. And if you don't cover it, okay, they didn't get this lesson. 
But here, somehow, by not communicating this lesson to the Jewish people, the lesson was so important that something very dramatic results from this. And that is, he can't take them into the land. What is this lesson? So, let's listen up to Rashi's words. So let's take a look, first at the Pesukim. There's a source sheet, if you want one page. Chukas Perik Chaf, Pasuk Ches. This is Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Hashem tells Moshe, after the people are crying for water, Kaches Hamata, V'hakelis Ha'eda, Atav Aaron Achicha, V'dibartem El Asela Le'ineyem, V'nosan Meima, V'hitzesela Mayim En Asela V'hishkisa Sa'eda V'hizbira. Take the staff, Gather the people, you and Aaron, speak to the rock in front of their eyes, and it will give its water. It will give, it will unleash its water. And you will extract from it water from the rock, you'll irrigate the entire congregation and all of their animals, all of their livestock. Moshe lifts up his hand. He strikes the rock with his staff twice, and lots of water, abundant of water, Mayim Rabim, comes out, and the entire community drinks, not only they, but all of their animals. So the men, the women, the children, of course, but all the cattle, everyone is irrigated, everybody's thirst has been quenched. Mazel tov. You would think, wow, <laughs> I think it's a pretty big miracle. You take a stick, you take a stick in the wilderness when three million people are asking for what you're talking about, that's talking about 10 people. You're talking about a few million people. We don't know the exact number, but it's lots and lots of people. Hundreds of thousands between 20 and 60 males. But then you have females, you have people younger than 20, people older than 60, etc. They all have to drink. And there is all the cattle. The Jews had a lot, a lot of cattle. All types of animals, domesticated animals. And everybody got to drink. It's pretty impressive. Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, Yan, since, You didn't believe in me to sanctify me before the eyes of the children of Yisrael. You won't bring this congregation to the land. You won't bring this entire community, this people, to the land that I have given them. One wonders, where did they not believe? Where did they not sanctify me? You did not believe in me to sanctify me? So Rashi says, Lahakti Sheni. There was an opportunity, Lahakti Sheni. She'ilu dibartem el hasela, If you would have only listened and spoken to the rock and it would have unleashed the water, Hayisi mekudosh le'ene ha'ed. I would have become sanctified before the eyes of the entire nation. If you would have listened and spoken to the rock, something special would have happened. They would somehow see something about me that they did not. Here is what they would have said. They would say as follows. Look at this rock. If even this rock that doesn't talk, it doesn't listen, it's a rock. It doesn't even need parnasa. doesn't need anything. A rock has no needs. It doesn't need parnasa. It doesn't need livelihood. It doesn't need health. It doesn't need sustenance. And nonetheless, it fulfills Hashem's words. 
it follows and obeys Hashem's commandments, Kalvachimer, certainly Anu, we should. And now this lesson has been lost. Let's analyze the words of Rashi. Rashi says that this lesson is what we know as a Kal Vachimer. What does Kal Vachimer mean? Every morning we say it before Davenik, right before Haidu, or before Baruch Shamar, if you Daven Nusachashkanaz. Rabbi Yishmael Oimer, Bishloish Esrei Midas Hatayr Nidreshes, Kal Vachaymer. Rabbi Yishmael says there's 13 ways through which we expound Torah. 13 methods of interpretation. The first is Kal Vachaymer. What does Kal Vachaymer mean? Kal means light. Chaymer means heavy. Kal is a lightweight. Chaymer is a heavy. What is this method? What is this principle of learning Torah through Kal Vachaymer? A Kal Vachaymer is basically a unique kind of an argument, and it's used frequently throughout Gemara, throughout the Talmud, and throughout the Medrash. Just like Rashi brings it here again. Kalvachimer. We even have ten times Kalvachimer is in the Tanakh itself. It's essentially an argument from the light to the heavy, from the Kal to the Chaimer. What does this mean? Or from the Chaimer to the Kal, I should say. You'll say as follows. If I can bench press 450 pounds, you think I can bench press 50 pounds? Yes. If you can run 20 miles, you think you could run one mile? Yes, it's logical. 20 miles is much harder. (laughs) Takes more time and more energy than running one mile. That seems like a very logical argument. If you can do 20 miles, for sure you can do one mile. That's called Kal v'chaymer. So here is the argument of Kal v'chaymer. If a rock responds, when Hashem says, give it water, you speak to the rock, and you tell the rock, Hashem wants you to give water. And the rock responds, even though the rock doesn't speak, the rock doesn't listen, the rock doesn't have to make a living, the rock has no needs, still... When Hashem speaks to it, it gives water. If a rock does that, then for sure, if God asks you to do something, you should respond. It's like a (laughs) no-brainer. It's poshit. If the rock does it. In other words, it would say, if, if you could run 25 miles. Really, 25 miles. Wow. So, so now, one mile. You're going to complain about one mile? The rock does it. That's like, wow. The rock doesn't speak. The rock doesn't talk. The rock doesn't answer. For sure you should do it. Anybody's following the logic here? <laughs> How logical is this? <laughs> doesn't, it make, doesn't it work exactly the other way around? <laughs> Isn't it easier for a rock than it is for me? It's a, very, it's a very interesting argument. We read the Rashi and we're like, okay, let me try to get this lesson. Let me try to get this lesson straight. The rock does it, for sure you should do it. But one second, a rock is a rock. If I'm not mistaken, a rock has no free choice. (laughs) A rock doesn't get into bad moods. A rock does not suffer from depression. I believe a rock doesn't have a Yetzirah. (laughs) A rock doesn't have a complicated personality. A rock doesn't get exhausted. A rock doesn't get sick. I mean, things can happen to the rock 
to the rock. But a rock doesn't have resistance. It's a rock. So if God tells the rock to do something, and he's the creator of the world, and the rock somehow is in tune with that, so the rock does it. Yes, it doesn't talk, it doesn't listen. That's exactly why it does it. It doesn't need anything. That's the point. It's just a rock. So if Hashem wants it to do something, it will obey. But a person, a person is much more complicated. We have conflicting drives. We have trauma. We have resistance. We have issues. Not all of us. Do all of us have issues? I can speak for myself. I won't talk about anybody else. Some of us have issues. We have cravings. We need to survive. We are often driven to make the wrong choices. <laughs> Not every choice every person makes is always the most productive, beneficial choice. A person is a, a, com- a complex creature. Our hearts and brains often conflict on so many different levels. Things are much more complex with people. So the lesson from the rock doesn't seem so logical. I mean, for the rock, there's no period, there's no choice. Let me, let me just give you an illustration. It's not my own, but I think it's a very good illustration to describe what we find difficult about this Rashi, and let me articulate it, okay? Imagine a guy who works with computers all day. You know anybody like that? A guy works literally with computers all day. Those are his best friends. Computers. Okay. He comes home. He's exhausted. And he wants a few minutes of peace and quiet. He wants to sit on the couch. He wants to read the newspaper. wants to sip iced coffee, latte, cup glass of wine, whatever it is. His children, thank God, are jumping all over the place. So he tells the kids as follows. Kids, I really don't understand you. You know, all day I work with computers. All day. And the computer just listens to me. The computer does whatever I want. If I put it on, it goes on. And if I shut it off, it shuts off. Doesn't scream, doesn't jump on my head, doesn't start making sounds that I'm not interested in doesn't demand attention, doesn't need validation, doesn't want me to play with them, doesn't cry, doesn't nudge, doesn't quetch, doesn't even have emotional needs. It's a pleasure. Can't you learn from the computer? Madach, a computer that doesn't speak and doesn't listen and doesn't need parnasa. You don't have to feed the computer. It doesn't need livelihood. And still it listens to me. For sure. You kindalach, when I say, give me peace and quiet and go play in another room, you should listen to me. How would this person's children respond? I think they would say, daddy has been spending too much time in the office. He's been spending too much time with computers. We're not computers. We're people. We're real people. In theory, some people would like if the people around them were computers. But that's not the reality. Or if somebody tells their child or somebody tells their spouse, why can't you take a lesson from the air condition? How is that for a kavachem? From the AC. It always listens to me. Why can't you? Why do you have to argue with me? 
Why do you have a different opinion? Again, this person has been spending too much time with air conditions. This is senseless. An AC is dead. You are lively and alive. What is this Kalvachim? The rock listens. Yes, Baruch Hashem. I'm very happy. For sure you should listen. There's a clue in the story. There's always a clue. In the Torah, every story has clues. And the clues always allow you, just like Lahavdal in a game, you know, there's a clue. There's even a game called Clue. <laughs> the clue is, this is not the first time it's happening. It's not the first time Jews are thirsty. It's not the first time Jews want water. Forty years earlier, they also had no water. Shortly after they came out of Mitzrayim, Parshas B'Shalach, shortly after they crossed the Red Sea, the Jews did not have water. They came crying to Moshe. Moshe came to Hashem. And Hashem tells Moshe to take his stick and strike the rock to produce water. I want you to read that and we'll compare the contrast. Parshas B'Shalach, Perik Yud, Zion, Pasuk Vav. Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. God says, I will stand in front of you on the rock in Chayrev. Strike the rock. And water shall come out of it. And the nation will drink. Moshe did just that before the elders of the Jewish people. He did just that and everything worked out perfectly. The Jewish people had water in this impossible wilderness and desert, which was barren and infertile, no rain, no natural wells, no natural springs or ponds, lakes, seas, rivers. They have their water, and actually, the rock accompanies them for 40 years. We even give it a name. It's called Be'erishal Miriam, the well of Miriam. And of course, that's the connection when Miriam passes away, according to Rashi and the Chazal, that rock stops flowing the water, which is why we have a new crisis. This makes the story much more perplexing. Then it was fine to strike the rock. Now it became a cardinal sin. How bad can it be to strike a rock when Hashem himself, 40 years ago, told Moshe to strike it? And he did just that. 40 years later, he says, speak to the rock. And now the fact that he strikes the rock, repeating what he himself did just four decades ago, it becomes something that causes him not to enter into the land. How are we supposed to understand this? If you recall, a few years ago we had a class on this. We have a few classes on this. We had a woman's class on this, one of the Tuesdays. I think it was right in the year, probably before Corona. We discussed different perspectives, different interpretations. One very powerful interpretation, which I'm not going to get into today. I'm just mentioning this in passing because it's always a, it's a very, very moving and deep interpretation. And that is, 40 years earlier... The Jewish people have just come out of Egypt. They were slaves. Forty years later, most of the people who were lived as adults in Egypt and were beaten slaves have passed away. This was a new generation of Jews born in freedom. Striking the rock and speaking to the rock is not just about the physical water. It's two models of leadership. Slaves, sadly, are beaten. And I don't just mean physically beaten. That was also true, tragically, but also emotionally. The definition of the slave is, I don't want to be here. The Gemara has an expression in Gitin, Avda Be'efkeire Nichelu. Slave says, I want to be out of here. What causes the slave to be here and to serve you? And the answer is, he has no choice. He's forced. 
Yes, slaves were physically beaten, sometimes horrendously, in the American South and in other places where there was slavery, till Lincoln emancipated them. But it's not just the physical, it's the whole attitude. It's the stick. It's my way or the highway. What if the slave says, I'm not in the mood. I want to sleep in today. (laughs) The slave had no choice. If he wanted to survive, if she wanted to survive, if they wanted their food, if they wanted to come out alive, remember, owners felt that they were the absolute masters of, the sl- of slaves. Tragically. But that's the M.O. of the slave. Whether the person calls himself, the person is physically a slave or not, the Jewish people who were decades and decades slaves in Egypt, that was the model with which they lived. They were slaves. Slaves are beaten into obedience. The greatest mistake, one of the great mistakes people can do is they don't realize that what sometimes works, worked successfully in a different situation with a different person in a different climate spells disaster. Even if my intentions may be well, may be excellent. There was a time when you could strike the rock. God says to Moshe, this is a new era. You have to speak to the rock. A free person, you can't beat. If somebody comes to me and starts beating me, what am I going to do? Yeah, 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 yeah. You have my soul, you have my body. Unless I'm nebuch. If I don't have an identity, which is true. Sometimes a person has no identity and they acquiesce, they submit to abuse. But a person who is grew up in freedom, what's my response if you take a stick and hit it over my head? I'll take a stick and hit it over your head. Or I'll call 911. Or I'll call Chaveir. <laughs> or Shemrim. Or I'll run. What about emotionally? Again, I'm not talking about the physical stick, the attitude. You have to speak to me. You need to inspire me. You need to persuade me. You've got to speak to my soul, to my heart. And if I get frustrated, the stick is not working. Why don't you just Listen. Because I'm a free person. It's a very, very profound existential shift in pedagogy, in education. There's a lot to say about this. That's why I gave a whole class on it. You could look it up on the yeshiva.net, Parshas Chukas. And how that connects with Moshe and Eretz Yisrael and the two generations and Moshe and Yeshua and the two names over there. It's called Sur. Here it's called Sela. Two different types of rocks. But today... I want to follow the trajectory that Rashi is taking us on, the Kalvachimer. We want to understand what this Kalvachimer with the rock is. How my kids are supposed to behave better than the computers. Because <laughs> the computers don't talk. And they don't talk back to me. <laughs> and my kids do talk. And they have opinions. One day, huh? But even when the computers speak back to us, we program them, right? I could program my computer to say, hey, I love you. I can even program it to say, hey, I really don't like you. Get out of the room. But I turn it off. I turn it on. I can undo the program. You're saying one day when artificial intelligence is going to prevail over us and they're going to take over the world, right? Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry, it's going to be good. There's certain things that even... uh, no, no, even, even some things that artificial intelligence don't get. So the following explanation is based on the Maharal of Prague, 
one of the greatest seminal uh, thinkers in Jewish history. He lived in the 16th century. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Leva of Prague. He was the chief rabbi of Prague today, Czechoslovakia. He wrote many, many numerous works on Machshava and Jewish thought. He has a sefer called Gvuris Hashem. And I think it's in chapter 7 where he elaborates on this. His language is very difficult to understand and cryptic, but it's based on his thoughts. But I want to especially thank my dear colleague, Rabbi David David Foreman from the Five Towns, Alpha Beta, Alpha Beta, who really, I think, brought it down and illustrated very beautifully in a sheer. And based on some other Sfarim and ideas and sources that serve as the nucleus of our following explanation, Be'ezer Hashem. You see, for 40 years, the Jewish people were living a life of miracles in the desert. Everything was a miracle. You couldn't survive without a miracle. The food that they had was miraculous, manna from heaven. The water that they had was miraculous from the rock, the rolling, the Be'erish al-Miriam, the rolling stone of Miriam. The clouds of glory that protected them. Their relationship with Moshe and Aaron, direct relationship with Hashem. In the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. The, the miracles was not something unique. It was part of the daily fabric of Jewish life. Wherever you turned, the man was a type of food. The Gemara says a person didn't have to evacuate anything because it had no, no psoilus. It had no part that the body would reject. Everything was of value, of nutrition, of, 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 had nutrients that were beneficial for the body, etc., etc. The way the clothes developed with them, the entire experience was one that super, was supernatural. Now, they're poised to enter into the Holy Land and the laws of nature are going to dictate their daily lives. The Pasuk says, six years you should plant your fields, six years you should sow. On the seventh year, you have Shemitah. That's why the spies, the Miraglim, one of the explanations, why didn't the spies want to enter into the land? Because they would give up a life of miracles for an environment that's controlled by nature. The Balatanya says that the spies were not just evil rabble-rousers. They actually felt something very profound. Leaving the desert would be leaving paradise. No, <laughs> sometimes you have to be foolish to leave paradise. Literally. Eretz Yisrael, living in the land, would require a completely different lifestyle that's based on the laws of nature. It was at this point, and precisely at this point, that the Jewish people needed a particular lesson. They needed to hear a lesson that would define their entire future. And the lesson would be gleaned from one moment. Moshe speaking to the rock, rather than striking it. Why? What's the difference between nature and miracles? In Hebrew we call nature teva, and a miracle we call a nace. What's the difference? When a rock gives water because of a miracle, there's a miracle. It's above nature. Essentially, it's a defiance of its own nature. Rocks don't give water. If I could use this expression, the rock is beaten. The rock is beaten into obedience. The rock, conceptually speaking, is beaten to go against its own grain, its own rockiness. I don't know if I just made up a word. To go against its own nature. A rock doesn't like giving water. True? Rocks don't like giving water. You know what rocks like to do? They like to sit around in the desert for hundreds and thousands of years and just relax in the sun. 
Anybody can relate? <laughs> a lot, a lot of vi- a lot of vitamin D. <laughs> they just like to sit in one place forever. If you don't move them, they don't move, and they're pretty content. It's pretty cool sometimes to watch some of those rocks have been there. I don't know since when, since other Mauritians' times. A rock is not a spring. So the Creator comes and says, now you have to produce one million gallons of water. (laughs) Or two million gallons of water. Okay, the rock will do it. The rock has a boss. The rock has a master. But that's called hitting the rock. Forcing it to defy its chemistry. It's not what rocks do. Rocks have a chemistry. There's a nature of something called a rock, just like there's something called a spring, a well, an ocean, rain. But you're the boss. So you can beat the rock into obedience. That's what a miracle is. The rock defies its own nature and chemistry, and it it unleashes three million gallons of water, Givaldic. That world of miracles was slowly slipping away at this point. As the Jews, after 40 years in the desert, are going to leave the paradise of the desert. And they're going to go into a civilized land and build a fragment of heaven on earth within the laws of nature. That old world was slowly fading away. And when the Jews are going to enter the land, they're going to be completely leaving the world of miracles behind them. They're going to go into a different world. A, a non-miraculous world, a natural world. Now, it's not anymore, we can't any longer continue to hit the rock. The rock, before they enter the land, has one last lesson to teach the people. What's the last lesson? This rock has been giving water for 40 years because it was struck. Complete miracle. But before you go, before you leave me, before you go into the land, I'm going to teach you one more lesson. And it's very moving how this rock, this very same rock is going to teach the lesson. And what's the lesson? The lesson is rocks don't just respond when they're struck. Rocks can also respond when they're spoken to. When the Creator speaks to them, The rock can listen, even if it's not hit. In other words, nature can respond to the Rebbeinu Shalaylam. Nature can respond to Hashem, not because it's forced, but because it wants to. The language of the Pasuk here is profoundly instructive. And I want you to see one contrast, and that will add to the clue. Forty years ago, when Moshe was commanded to strike the rock, take a look at the fourth source, B'Shalach Yudzayin, Hashem said, mayim. You hear the language? Strike the rock, and what's going to happen? Water will come out of it. The rock, rock is passive. Moshe is active. Moshe is drawing water out of the rock. What's the rock doing? Nothing. I have nothing to say here. Moshe comes, strike the rock, and the water will come out. Now, 
40 years later, Hashem changes the language. I would expect the same language. Look at the first source. He should have said, Speak to the rock. And what would happen? Doesn't say that. Instead of Yatsu, the first line, the first line of the source sheet, the last two words. Instead of Yatsu, what's the word? Vinasan. And instead of Mayim, Meimav. Do you see the difference? What's the difference of Yatsu and Vinasan? Vinasan means the water will come out. It'll come out of you. Vinasan, you will give. He will give. You see the difference? Vinasan, the rock will give. And another, another difference. The first time around, it's water will come out. This time it's Vinasan Meimav. He's going to give his water. His water. Really? His water? He owns the water? His water? What's the difference? What happened? Why there? It's v'yotzu You strike the rock, water will come out. And this time, you'll speak to the rock, and the rock will give. The rock is not passive. The rock is active. He is actually the giver. He is the giver. And you know what he's going to give you? He's going to give you meimov. He's not going to give you water. He's going to give you his water. It's going to give you its water. If you want to use the word its, we're talking about a rock. It's almost as if the rock is deciding to give the water. <laughs> Vinasan. It's like when you give tzedakah. You give, you decide to give. You speak to the rock. You didn't hit the rock, you spoke. It's not just, again, it's not just the physical difference hitting or speaking. It's what the two models represent. It's deciding to give water and its own water, not just water. Why? Why? Because the Creator asked it. And the rock wants to respond. My Creator asked me to give water, and I want to respond. I would like to give you the water. So the rock will give its water. Why would the rock want to respond? Why? Didn't we just say that rocks love sitting around in the desert, relaxing and doing nothing? <laughs> They're not into giving water. That's not what rocks do. You could look at them. And the answer is because it's natural for nature to respond. It's natural for nature to respond. And let's go here on a short journey, but one that really defines everything inside of us and around us. One of the most perplexing questions in science is why is there such a thing as the laws of nature? If any of you remember the chemistry books you grew up with, the science books or physics books, or if you ever still read these stuff in books or on the internet or whatever, they'll say, why is this so? And the logical explanation will be, it's the laws of nature. But that's not an explanation. <laughs> it's very convenient to stop the conversation. Why is there such a thing as the laws of nature? Who creates them? Why am I obligated to follow this law of nature? I could create a law. <laughs> a law for my home, for my community, for my state, for my country, for the world. How many people are going to follow it? Even I don't follow my own laws. Right? I made a law for myself. I shouldn't eat a certain food. The next day I broke it. Why does none of nature decide ever? Who decided all these laws? What, what, what is it? Why is there such a thing as laws of nature? And the laws of nature, by the way, they're all synchronized with each other. It's not one law. You're talking about 
a number of laws that are numbers of laws that are mind-staggering, and they all have to work in perfect synchronization. Why should rocks? Why should rocks? Why should any object feel compelled to follow the incredibly nuanced laws of gravity? Why? Because <laughs> it's gravity; it's the law of nature. Why? Why should atoms behave in a way that the laws of chemistry dictate? Well, if they wouldn't, there would be no matter. I get it. So who told us to the atoms? Who told them to behave so well? And what if they want to take a little vacation? In fact, it would have been a lot simpler for everything to be just chaotic all of the time. And throw, <laughs> there's something called in science the entropy principle. And it basically dictates that if you leave something to its own devices, it doesn't become more organized, it becomes more chaotic. If you don't believe me, look at your teenager's room. If you tell your teenager, you know, you don't have to clean up the room, because after a month it will become more organized, after two months it will be even more organized, and after a year of not touching anything, every part in the room will be in its perfect space. You're all laughing. You just leave it untouched for three days and it's a churban. You think Noyach's flood has descended into the room. It's called the entropy principle. Naturally, things tend to become less organized, not more organized. If you leave an event to happen on its own, what's going to happen? It's going to become more organized. Yet with nature, it's the exact opposite. It was a big bang, 15.3 billion years, and then everything became so organized to the point that it is so fine-tuned completely defy mathematical statistics. It's incredible. How does that happen? And the answer is that nature is not dead. And the laws of nature are not dead. Nature has a soul. It possesses a desire. Nature has conviction. Darizal says that even a rock has a soul. What does that mean? Nature has a hunger. It's a hunger to fulfill the expectations of its creator, to do what its creator wants. That's what we mean when we say nature has an ashama, nature has a soul. When a rock is a rock, when a rock follows the laws of physics, it's doing its creator's will joyously. Chazal speak about the fact that the orbit of the galaxies, the orbit of the planets, are basically a dance. Today we know atoms... The swift orbit of the electrons, it's incredible. Every atom has the nucleus, and then you have the electrons that are revolving around an incredible speed. From the Chazal and Kabbalistic perspective, it's essentially a dance, like the bee dance. When the bee finds out where the food is, where the nectar is, the bee starts dancing, and then all the other bees know where to get the food. That's why after there's one bee in your garden, 20 minutes later there's 60 bees. The bee has a dance. The orbits of the atoms are a form of a dance. It's a joyous expression of I'm fulfilling the desire of my creator. When the penguin marches hundreds of miles to jump into the water and pluck out food in order to bring to its young chicks. When a grizzly bear plucks the salmon out of the river, it's following its instinct and doing God's will. Doing the creator's will. When a bee pollinates a flower, 
so that it can procreate and create a new generation of flowers. It's following its soul. What do I mean its soul? Its instinct to fulfill the divine plan for creation that is being facilitated through this bee or through this butterfly. When the winds scatter the clouds, what's happening? He says the laws of nature. Winds come and scatter the clouds. They're following their soul, their innate desire to fulfill the grand plan that the rain shouldn't fall right back into the sea. If there was no wind, what would happen? The clouds would uh, vaporize, suction the water, and then it would rain and come right back into the ocean. And the rest of earth would remain infertile. The winds scatter the clouds, so when the water comes down, it doesn't go back into the place where it came from the oceans. Rather, it quenches the thirst of arid soil and creates produce and vegetation so we can all be alive. It distributes the rain all over the earth so the planet can survive, we can eat and we can live. Nature always does Hashem's will. That's what it means, laws of nature. And they have a desire to do Hashem's will. So when Hashem wants a rock to do something, it doesn't have to be forced. You don't have to force the rock. You don't have to beat the rock into obedience. You don't have to have the rock defy its chemistry. It doesn't have to be beaten. You could speak to it. And the rock will listen. Because a rock every moment is doing exactly what God wants it to do. Just like every other force, every other component in nature, every moment is doing exactly what the Rebbeinah wants it to do. Comes Hashem and He says, it's at this point that human beings can take a cue from nature. And this becomes the Kalvachimer. Because essentially... What is he saying? I'm also a rock. You're also a rock. What do I mean I'm a rock? I don't sit in one place forever in the sun. Sometimes you like for a few hours. But it means a rock is a creature. I'm a creature. You're a creature. It's just I'm a creature. I'm a person. So I have a mind. A rock is inanimate. A rock is called diamond. It's an inanimate being. But essentially... I and the rock are both creatures. We're conceived, we're designed by our creator. So if a rock that doesn't speak and doesn't listen, doesn't have an intelligence, doesn't have the human brain, doesn't have the 80 trillion cells that make up the human organism, doesn't have the nine systems that make up our biological systems, doesn't have to make a living, and yet it listens when Hashem asks something of it, certainly... Shouldn't human beings? So you say, well, we have choices. We have desires. Some of us even have addictions. We have bad habits. We have difficult challenges. We sometimes live in different types of prisons. Some of us may have mood disorders, personality disorders. Some people may even have very physical or emotional or serious psychological challenges. And I have to make a living. That's true. But fundamentally... In one sense, we're like a rock. Shouldn't you listen when God speaks to you? What does this mean? I want to explain what this means. Why do we bother doing the will of Hashem? Why do we bother fulfilling, even asking, what does God want from me? If you're a Jew, and you were given Torah mitzvahs, 
Why? I get this question around 50 times a day in different emails, especially from the youth. Why should I fulfill mitzvahs? Why? It's unbelievable you can have a 25-year-old young man married, learning in Kailal, and he sends an email across the Atlantic Ocean to somebody living not far from here, a few blocks away. He says, I'm 25 years old, I've been in yeshiva for 20 years. Could you tell me why should I do any of the mitzvahs? Is it because, you can do multiple choice, so that your father-in-law doesn't stop paying the wage and says, get out of my daughter's life? Is it because your neighbors shouldn't have a bad opinion about you and who knows what they're going to say if you abandon it? Is it because of your mother? What's your mother going to say? What's your father going to say? What's your grandmother going to say? What are your uncles going to say? What are your siblings going to say? But what if we strip all that away? What if we strip all that away? Is it maybe you're afraid that God is going to throw you into purgatory? He's going to throw you into Gehenna, into the abyss? What if we strip that away too? Maybe there are other ulterior motives. Maybe it's a fine way to live. It doesn't bother me too much. I like this. I like that. There's a lot of advantages, this community, this family, there's holidays. Somebody once said, he says, you know, I used to be an atheist, but I quit. And why? He says, they don't have any holidays. <laughs> you know, there's no Pesach, no Shavuos, no, there's not even Thanksgiving. Who, who are you thanking? Thanksgiving to who? To Joe Biden? Who, who are you giving thanks to? <laughs> he wants holidays. So here's the question. If I wasn't forced, I wasn't compelled, I wasn't threatened... No ulterior motives. Would I still do any of the mitzvahs? If we cannot answer this question, we have a serious challenge. If the Jews were going to enter the land and continue to serve God, continue to serve Hashem, without miracles, without stunning miracles, they would need to discover an internal motivation. That's what the Kalvachimer is about. The Kalvachimer is about the rock is going to help you find out who you are. The rock is going to help you discover your internal motivation. The rock listens. The butterfly listens. The turtle listens. The salmon listens. Even the herring and the carp and the hecht. No pun intended. And the Chilean sea bass. Listen, the sun listens, the moon listens. The cells listen, the electrons listen, the water molecules listen, and even the turtles, they're slow, but they listen. Shouldn't I listen to? Shouldn't you listen to? In a way, a miracle is a force that forces you. What's a miracle saying? I don't care about nature. And I want to hear shift things of how we usually, sometimes we have to make a little shift. We usually look enviously at the world of miracles. You know, I often get letters from people. If only I would experience the miracles that they talk about in the holy books, I would also be an inspired Jew. You remember? I mean, we all feel that way. You know, you read Tanakh, you read Chumash, or you read stories about this person and that person. If only we had been there to see the miracles, ah, we would all be on fire. But now it's just, you know, SOS, same old sushi, same old spaghetti. Life is boring. 
Is God really here? Is God really listening? But the truth is, the Balatanya writes in Lakut Torah and Torah that it's the other way around. Because, and, and, and take this with a grain of salt, of course, in many ways, miracles represent a remedy for an immature world and an immature person. Basically, external stimuli propels me to do the will of God. And that's what hitting the rock means. In the non-miraculous world, it's completely internal. It's the real thing. And that's what the stick means. The stick means, I don't care about your chemistry. It's not coming from you. I can force you to be something that you're not. It'll take get out water. The world of non-miracles, it's about the rock itself. It's completely internal. It's authentic. It's the deepest relationship. It's the deepest vacus. In that world, it's all about the question, do you have it in yourself to rise to the desire of your Creator? Do you have it in yourself to see who you really are? You're a manifestation of the divine symphony that vibrates through the world. A chestnut tree does not have to see miracles to perform photosynthesis and another million things to produce chestnuts. Why? Why does it do what it does? Is the chestnut trying to impress its neighbors, trying to get a shidduch, trying to get its daughter into seminary, afraid of what the Baba is going to say? It wants this, it's afraid of Gehenim. Because it wants to do what God wants. That's its nature. So why does it need a miracle? So we talk about the Yetzirah. Let's define what that is. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination. We talk about the Yetzirah, the good inclination. What does this mean? I have a Yetzirah, I have a Yetzirah. We say the Yetzirah is inside of me. The Yetzirah is inside of me. What does it mean? It means as follows. The Yetzirah, it's not just some strange inclination. Basically what it is, it's the deepest part of who I am. When I strip everything away, external stimuli, the recognition that I'm not a valueless, random mistake. I'm not an infinitesimal blimp on the surface of infinity. I am not valueless and inconsequential. I'm a living creature, part of the organic story of creation, and I want to be part of that story. I want to be part of nature. I want to be part of the glorious symphony of creation, doing the will of its creator like every single other element of nature. The Yetzir Toiv is the inner voice that allows me to see myself as part of the great cosmic symphony of nature. There's a very delicate ecosystem. Each of us has something to contribute. No bee and butterfly in the world thinks that the purpose of life is only to take and take and take and take and take. Everyone is a mashpia and a makabal. Every atom knows this. Every neuron knows this. Every cell knows this. Every ant knows this. Every ant knows. We're all givers just like we're all takers. And you're an indispensable part of this divine cosmic symphony. And each one is dependent on the other. We spoke a few weeks ago about Birch HaSamaz and Azanas HaOlam Kula. You remember Azanas HaOlam Kula? Betuve Bechem Bechesed Rachman. And I have my light to shine. You have your light to shine. And it's so delicate because there's a food chain and there's a food web and there's an ecosystem. There's the physical ecosystem and there's the emotional ecosystem and there's the spiritual ecosystem. 
I have a weakness. I like watching animals. Maybe it's not a weakness. It's just something I, part of my, uh, something I like doing. I like watching animals. I love going to zoos. I went to Kruger National Park in South Africa and I had a field day. I love safaris. I like documentaries on animals. My kids think I'm a little crazy. They're like at the Shabbos table, are you going to start talking about bees again? You're going to start talking about penguins again? Okay. So, so forgive my, uh, my illustration here. If you don't relate to it, I respect it. Did you ever watch a family of gorillas jumping around on each other, playing with each other, grooming each other, and you had this deep desire to jump in with them and become part of their family? Now, I, I also don't do it. They're bigger than me, they're stronger than me, and they did not invite Rabbi Waiwai to give them a lecture. They're not interested. <laughs> they won't even let me hang out there for free. I don't do it. But, but you know that feeling? It's like I'm so curious. What does it feel like to be in that family? They're so innocent. There's no shidduch crisis. No community issues. <laughs> I don't know, maybe they have identity crises. I don't know if they have therapists there, psychologists, psychiatrists, chvesnish. But like you have this feeling like, like I, I, I want to be part of you just for a few minutes. Would you give me an honorary, an honorary, uh, uh, would, would you allow me to be an honorary visitor? Did you ever observe a bunch of trees swaying together in the spring breeze? And you had this desire to listen to their symphonic conversations. You know, you can almost hear... The Gemara calls it Sichas Tkolim, Sichas Elonois. The trees have conversations. I want to hear it. I'm curious. You ever watch the birds going back to their nests here in Munsi at sunset? And they're singing and they're schmoozing. You think people know how to have conversations? Four o'clock in the morning, they wake up, they start singing. And for a moment, I want, <laughs> I want to know, what are you guys talking about? Could I come in with you to the nest and be a bird for a few moments? The Medrash says that Hashem told Moshe, you can't go into Israel. Moshe said, I won't go in as a person. Allow me to go in as a bird. I'll chirp over the land of Israel. That's how much he wanted to go in. <laughs> During Corona, we weren't going to shul, unfortunately. So uh, Shabbos morning, early in the morning, I would learn together with my wife. We would learn. So once the shear went for a long time, and, uh, you know, the sun has already uh, risen a while ago. And this bird came and landed. It was on the back porch by our house. And this bird came and landed and was just nonstop. So uh, one of my kids said, the bird is telling you, it's again, davenen. It's very nice. You're having a good time. It's time to go daven. And you know what? I can't swear that that's what the bird was saying. But somehow it resonated. And if you ever read Perik Shira, I don't know if you ever read Perik Shira, that's exactly what it's about. I don't know if ever, any of you ever walked through a real desert, like real deserts. They're like, there's a silence there that is deafening. You hear this utter silence. And, and I have this desire, I want to experience the soul of the mute rocks. Like, what's, what's, what's inside these rocks? Does anybody uh, relate to... Uh, my strange uh, desires here. Did you ever see the march of the penguins to the water? They jump in together to the water. They fabring each other. They go hundreds of miles through grueling, grueling weather. Grueling. Antarctica. 
and they're socializing and singing and fabrenging with each other playfully and joyfully. And I want, I want to jump into the water with them and be part of their symphony. Because when you see nature rejoicing in its creator, it's really rejoicing in its creator, we say to ourselves, how can I not be part of this? What am I, an isolated, detached creature? You know, the, one of the ultimate definitions, I think, of trauma, at least according to Bessel van der Kolk, is the isolation of it. I become truly an isolated person. That's why attachment is so critical. Without attachment, there's no life. The first thing Hashem says is not good, loitoiv. First thing in the title is loitoiv, loitoiv, heyoi, sa'adam, levadoi. For a person to feel lonely. And it's not physical loneliness as much as it is deep, deep emotional loneliness. You lack that connection, that attachment. Everything is connected. Everything is one. Everything is part of organic oneness. Enoid Mulvade, every creature is manifesting, is an indispensable note and it plays its unique melody, its unique ballad. That's why sometimes being in nature could be a very spiritual experience. Some people are more sensitive to it than other people. Sometimes, you know, you go hiking in a particular park or up a particular mountain and you feel like you're part of, of literally, it's like a niggin. Rab Nachman of Breslov writes in Lakute Maharan, every single creature sings a song. He says, every, every blade of grass, every shrub, every bush, every tree, it's singing a song and you feel like you're part of it. You look in Tehillim, David HaMelech captures this best. We say it every morning in Pesukah de Zimra. You remember over there in the Halalukas. Halaluas Hashem min ha'aretz. They praise God from the earth. Taninim v'chal tohoimus. Ein shuvore, chalag chiter. Ruach sorois sedvore. Hamayim v'chal gvoyus. Eitz pni v'chal arozim. Hachayim v'chal behemer. Remes v'tzipar konuf. Malcheretz v'chal omim. You remember what I'm talking about? Bachurim v'gam besulis kenim v'nanim. You know, we read it in Hebrew, so we often don't even realize what he's saying. But listen to the words that he's saying, you know. Praise Hashem from the earth. The sea monsters. All the deep, fire, hail, snow, vapor, storming winds, performing his word. The mountains, the hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, cattle, creeping things and winged fowl. Kings and nobles, nationalities, young men, young women, elderly people, the eld and the young. And that's what Perik Shira is. Perik Shira is an ancient Jewish text. And it basically teaches that every element of our ecosystem has its own song. There's the song of the sky and the song of the seas, the song of the sun and the moon, the song of the fig tree and the song of the pomegranate tree, the song of the wolf and the song of the hyena, the song of the lion and the song of the beer, the song of the spider and the song of the duck. Even the spider sings its song. You don't want to get caught in its song or in its web. But the rooster, not only the songbird, they all sing their song. Even the mouse and the fox and the elephant, they all sing their song. And when you see that, when I see that, I tell myself, how can I not be part of it? I'm an essential part of this symphony. How can I be the only one that doesn't respond? They all know what to do. The only one who doesn't know what to do is the person. Who am I? Who am I not? Am I happy? Am I not happy? How can I not respond? The Baal Shem Tov said the word halacha. What's halacha? Halacha is an acronym. Halacha. Hariu Lashem Kol Haaretz. What does that mean? Let the whole earth sing to Hashem. What's the connection to halacha? Hariu Lashem Kol Haaretz. Essentially, halacha is this. You see, nobody tells the bee what to do. The bee doesn't come to a shear. Why? 
The elephant never came to a shear. Even the spider. The mice sometimes come. But they don't listen. They're looking for cheese. Over here not. Baruch Hashem. Talking back in Brooklyn. Why? Because for them, the symphony is part of the genetics. For the person, there could be confusion. We have consciousness. We have choice. We have to discover ourselves. So everyone knows exactly what to do. No tree wakes up in the morning saying, Who am I? Who am I not? I think I need to go to therapy. Do I like myself? Don't I like myself? Of course you love yourself. Balatanya has a mime. I once taught it. He says, To understand the reason that every creature is always happy. Besides people. So he says, every animal, every creature is happy. And he says, the moment you wake up, you're also happy. But then you start thinking. (laughs) Now, thinking doesn't have to make me miserable. It depends how I think. And it depends what I think. Because here's the key. I'm not just part of the symphony. You and I are the directors of the symphony. That's very different. You ever went to a symphony? There is the people who are part of the symphony. It's incredible, but there's the director. Lam in Tehillim. Lam Matzeach is the choir master. The director of the symphony. I am the one creature, you are the creature who can be conscious of the symphony of its creator. The reason consciousness was given to me was not to become depressed and live in self-doubt and fear. The reason consciousness was given to me is because I am the one who can align the entire cosmos with its creator. I am the one who literally conducts the symphony, bringing all the musicians together, bringing all the notes together. You ever watch that conductor? He doesn't say a word. Schwitzt and schwitzt and schwitzt. Jumps around. That's the human being, the Adam is at the vortex of creation, the interlacing link between heaven and earth. Now the question is, how can I sleep on the job? How can I lose my enthusiasm? Chazal and the Gemara advocate for a person waking up early in the morning to recite Shema before sunrise, around six minutes before sunrise, and then start Shema Esra at sunrise. This is known as Vesikin. We have a minion every morning. They do six minutes before sunrise. Shmin Esra at sunrise, it's packed. Did you ever pray to Hashem at the moment of sunrise? You ever experienced it? Literally, you feel like you're joining the symphony of creation. You're not just an isolated person saying words. That's what halach is. Hariul Hashem Kalaretz. Halach is the missing link to connect the person to the entire symphony, because we're the conductors. So the sun rises, and the Jew becomes part of that song. The sun sets, and the Jew becomes part of that song. There's Shabbos, there's Yom Tev, there's, there's Sunday, there's Monday, there's Tuesday. As the Jew bows down to Hashem, you feel the whole planet bowing down with you. David HaMelech says, Nahara Yishim the rivers clap their hands together with you. Yachad the mountains sing. I was once visiting a yeshuv, a little town in Ma'on. It's in Samaria, surrounded by a lot of Hamas villages. And I went there, a bunch of farmers, they have a lot of farms. And the, the goats are up early in the morning, and it was basically around, uh, I think, four in the morning. 
and they all wake up and they come out, the goats, the sheep, they start davening chakras. It was like surreal as the sun was rising. Hariyu Lashem Kala Aret. Halacha is about synchronizing the symphony of the entire world, being in tune with that music. I want to show you here an interesting story, the last source here, from Base Aaron about the Balshemtiv. I'll say it, I'll say it outside, but you can read it inside because I want to I want to complete here the idea. He says about the Balshemtiv that once he went to do Kabbalah Shabbos outside on the field. The Balshemtiv used to go out for the Chadoidi, like the Arizal, they would go out to the field to welcome the Shabbos queen. So he went out to the field and there were a bunch of sheep and goats there that were there posturing at the field. And they saw that all the goats lifted up their forelegs as the Balshemtiv was davening. Imagine all the goats lifted up their forelegs, standing like people would stand. You ever saw how the beers, you know, the beers, they, they lift up those forelegs and they're standing on two? The goats lifted up and they stood there literally during the davening like that. And the question is, what happened? So the base Aharon says something so powerful. And I want to read to you the last three lines. As the Balshemtiv davened, he lifted up the world to its source. He aligned all of creation with Creator. So all these goats, even though they're goats, but the presence, the mindfulness, the energy the Baal Shem Tov unleashed, the energy of the goats is divine energy. Their instincts are divine. Their genetics are divine. Their brains are divine. It's divine energy manifested in them. Usually they're just being a goat. But as the energy of the cosmos was elevated, their energy was elevated. So physically, what did they do? They physically lifted themselves up. It was just a physical manifestation of a spiritual transformation. This type of motivation of nature is not external. Nobody forced the rock. Nobody forced the bee. True, they don't have choice. But it's, it's just who they are. This is who they are. They're created by Hashem. And they're completely happy to do just that. Fulfill their mission in this grand experience. And you know, sometimes a conductor knows every musician is indispensable. One musician doesn't show up and it changes everything. I may say, who cares? But for the conductor and for the composer, everyone is extremely valuable. And thus, we come back to what Hashem was telling Moshe Rabbeinu. There was a kalva chaymer that needed to be learned at this point before they're going into Eretz Yisrael. As long as you're living in a miracle land, you don't need this kalva chaymer. God is displaying His might everywhere and anywhere where the Jewish people are. The foes were defeated miraculously, including the miracles that happened to penalize those who were out of the system. Kairach didn't want to be in the system. You couldn't survive. It's like a leaf saying, I want to be free. Cut me off the tree. You ever try doing that? Pluck the leaf off the tree. What do you think is going to happen to it? Person says, I don't want the brain controlling me. Get my brain out of here. Get rid of the brain. What do you think is going to happen to the organism? In the Midbar, it was very obvious. That's what it means. Ve'ikisa batsur. 
ויצאו ממנו מים. But now you're going into Eretz Yisrael. The power of the miracle to say, I don't care about the rock. <laughs> I'm bigger than you, I'm stronger than you. The chemistry of the rock doesn't matter. That reality is going to be concealed. Now you have to talk to the rock. Now you have to talk to yourself. Now I need internal motivation. Internal motivation is the deepest motivation because it never ceases. It's me. It's who I am. It's not my neighbor. It's not even my grandmother. It's not even my mother. I respect my mother. I love my mother, but my mother is not me. My father is not me. My grandfather is not me. You say, just respect your parents and do what they want. Father once told me, I don't care what my son does in the privacy of his home. In front of us, he puts on a strimal. I say, that's how much little faith you have in your son to be inspired, huh? <laughs> It sounds beautiful, tradition. But essentially what you're saying is, I have nothing to tell you that's going to speak to your heart. I have nothing to tell you that's going to speak to you. But now, it's time to go to a much deeper place. In some ways, it's more mundane, but it's also deeper. In this sense... Of course, we love miracles, but Teva has something that's deeper than us. It says, Hanukkah and Purim, the miracles will conceal the nature. Purim didn't look like a miracle. Esther was in the right place at the right time, and she was a smart Jewish lady who played the cards right, and she killed Haman and got rid of the Xerah. It looked like nature, but it was all a miracle manifested in nature. And in that sense, it sends it's even greater than other holidays because it worked through Teva. It works through the system. The fact that it works through the system means it's one with you. It's part of my system. It's part of my biology. It's who I am, not just on a glorious, unbelievable day. This is who I am. That Kalvachimer they could learn from the rock. Why does the rock listen? What do you mean? <laughs> it has no pchira. It's nature. It does what its creator wants. It dances towards what its creator wants. So just because I have a mind, just because I have consciousness, just because I can recognize the truth, I shouldn't. True, I have pchira. True, I need to make a living. True, I speak. That's why our marshal with the computers and the AC is completely irrelevant here. The fact that I have consciousness, therefore I should detach myself from the symphony when I am not only part of the symphony, but the conductor of the symphony. This was a profound lesson the Jewish people had to learn at that moment. And remember that key word. Am I getting water from the rock? Or v'nosan meimov? Or is the rock giving me its water? You see? <laughs> and this is so important when it comes to work, and when it comes to education, and when it comes to marriage. You can get the water. Or you can get his water. You know the difference? You can get the job done. You can get the water. You'll get it. You have a big stick. You're powerful. I'm afraid of you. <laughs> I'll give you the water. I'll never give you my water. You'll never get my water. You see? If I strike the rock, I'm going to get water. I'll even get a lot of water. Moshe got a lot of water. Mayim Rabbim. But not its own water. When I speak to the rock, the water is its own. What's the difference? What's the difference? The difference is as follows. If I use power, if I use coercion, even if I use a miracle, if I could, 
but it's something outside of you. It's external stimuli. Maybe a carrot, maybe a stick, maybe a cotton candy, maybe punishment, maybe a paycheck, performance reviews, the way they try to motivate employees and companies. You will get their time, you will get their effort, you will get them working. They all need paychecks. Everybody needs a paycheck. You won't get their water. If you want their heart, if you want their creativity, if you want their neshama, if you want their soul, if you want their talent, if you want them to develop according to their own strength with loyalty and commitment, I have to lead them, inspire them, fire them up, rather than manage them and control them. If I want to set the world on fire, if I want to set my students on fire, if I want to set my disciples on fire, if I want to set my children on fire, if I want to set myself on fire. It starts with me, by the way. I can't just pick up a stick to me. We do it to ourselves. We take a stick and we beat ourselves over the head. Anybody knows what I'm talking about? As good Jews, you know that, right? Never mind. Mothers, Yiddish mamas, we take a stick and we beat ourselves. And sometimes we think that's exactly what God wants. And if it doesn't work, beat harder. Moshe didn't hit once, he hit twice. You didn't hit hard enough. Hit large. And you know what? The water came out. Wow! But I won't be able to go in. The transformation, the real transformation, I won't be able to create. You talk about children, education. You talk about students. You talk about family, friends. There's moments when we compel. There's moments when we use a stick. I don't think physically today, but conceptually. But if I want to help you truly grow and transform yourself from just a reservoir to a wellspring, and I want your water, I want your light, I want your soul, you're unique, the difference will be vastly dramatic. Hit them, and you get water no different from any other water. Speak to them, and you get them to show you the water that is their signature brand, truly their own. And we now come to the last point. If this is the case, then maybe Moshe was not being punished. Rather, he fulfilled his mission for his time. Because on one level, Moshe is eternal, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe is our teacher forever. We never had another teacher like Moshe because everyone else was teaching what Moshe gave us. And that remains so. But then there is Moshe's physical presence as the leader of that nation. It says in Medrash Tanchuma that the reason he couldn't go into Eretz Yisrael, like the Medrash gives us a whole other reason. He said, imagine there was a shepherd who was given flock and somebody came and kidnapped and abducted all the flock. And the shepherd comes back to the king, and the king says, where are your flock? He says, oh, they were abducted. He says, people are going to say that you took them. Why are you here? He says, go back with them and come back together. So Hashem told Moshe, you're going to go into Israel, and your whole generation stayed in the desert. You stay with them, and you'll all come together when it's time to come in. What does this bring out? This brings out how deeply Moshe was connected to his generation. His people that he fought for, 
that he turned from slaves into free people. He molded them into a nation. He overthrew Paris regime, took them to Harsinai, turned them into God's people, and led them for 40 years through the wilderness. The fact is, Tfilah Lamoisha Ishael Kim. Moshe was a man of miracles. Moshe lived in a, the world of divine infinity. In Kabbalah and Chassidus, it's called Yehuda Ilah, the higher level of unity where there's nothing outside of Hashem's oneness. Nature, so to speak, has no say. Nature is not the reality. God is the only exclusive reality, and it's felt in Moshe's heart and Moshe's soul. All he could see is Hashem. He knew how to strike rocks. What does it mean, strike rocks? Strike rocks means to represent the truth that there's nothing outside of the will of the Creator, but it's above nature. So the world conforms to the divine will by force. It has no existence outside of Hashem. In that way, Moshe remains so lofty and sublime, but then there's something called Yechudah Tata, a lower level of oneness. The last lesson the Jewish people needed before going into a world where there is nature, where there is a world of nature, there is a world of Teva. So they needed that person who will teach them how to make a transition from a miraculous existence to a non-miraculous existence in which there is nature. There are rocks, there are grizzly bears, there are penguins, there are butterflies, there are turtles, and there are people. And they all want to follow the blueprint of Hashem. Thousands of years later, after this story, as we also live in a world that is both miraculous and non-miraculous, Chazal say that so many miracles, one doesn't even recognize it. We live in a world... That's so natural in so many ways, even though we call it a Meshuganavelt, because nature itself is so complex and so nuanced and often not predictable. But if we listen carefully, we may also be able to hear the rock whispering its message sweetly into our ears. And that is that each and every single one of us is part of that extraordinary symphony. And the most organic, authentic, deepest thing I can be doing at any moment is elevating, seeing in myself how aligned I am with the cosmic oneness and being a facilitator of that divine music through my unique soul and your unique light. Have a wonderful week. I'm just going to announce again for those who weren't here in the beginning that we're going to be taking a break for three weeks, and then we're going to resume Tuesday mornings, 9.30 a.m. Not 12.45, 9.30 a.m. And it's going to be 18 for shade downstairs. That's not in a tent, it's in a regular building right here outside, 18 for shade. 9.30, please tell your friends or relatives. Um, so that's going to happen, Be'ezer Hashem. And once again, I'm going to invite all of you to my... Uh, birthday party, Thursday night, and uh, it would be an honor to have you and your husbands, and I wish you all, if you didn't get the information through internet or WhatsApp, you can ask Mrs. Klein, or you can email info at the yeshiva.net, that's Thursday night, 
with Mordechai ben David, Avrem Lefried, Lippe Schmelzer. And again, this week we're doing a fundraiser for the work that we're involved in, raiseathon.com slash yy, raiseathon, R-A-I-S-E-T-H-O-N dot com slash yy. It would be, I would be truly grateful for anybody to participate, especially to make a team and send to friends or relatives or acquaintances. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful, beautiful week in which you can hear every moment, or at least some moments, the symphony of nature without and nature within. Thank you for coming. And a gesunte Zummer, a healthy summer to you and your families. And uh, we should hear only Psurus Toivus. Betoiv Hanigla. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.